0: Thank you, Joe. Am I coming through? Coming through okay? Do I need more volume? I've been dealing, I suppose, this morning with a bit of, uh, well, past few days, with a bit of congestion and whatnot. But I want to invite you to go to the book of Joel, the book of Joel, and that is... Hosea, Joel, Amos. A little past the middle, almost to the New Testament, you'll see Hosea, Joel, Amos. That's the three books that will help you locate yourself in Joel. Now, this morning, we're continuing in our brief series, seven-week series in the book of Joel. We took a break from Acts. We're going to go back. I want to remind you of that. And so... We're walking through Joel to remind ourselves of the judgment that was uh, presented to the people of God in their rebellion, but then how Joel eventually, we'll get there, uh, eventually he gives the hint of what's going to happen at Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit and uh, the signs that will accompany that. He also speaks of the coming day of the Lord, wherein we see everything darkened, the sun and the moon and the stars all Darkened, And we know that this is one of the signs that often accompanies God's judgment. It often accompanies God's presence. It happened as well at the giving of the law, you may remember. So we wanna wanna find ourselves in Joel today, reminding you that he began with a prophetic word relating to a locust plague. Now I'm of the opinion that the locust plague was a real thing that Joel used to then preach to the people back Before the Babylonian captivity. So, we're talking about around 600 BC. He was preaching about the Babylonian captivity. So, there's the locust plague, which they knew and they saw, and it was devastating. Joel used that as sort of a sermon illustration to say, This is what's coming against you if you continue in your rebellion. And then there's a third part of what Joel prophesies it's not just the locust plague. And it's not just the Babylonian captivity, but he's also prophesying of the coming day of the Lord to which you and I are looking, to which you and I are headed. Now, thankfully, just as God uh, preserved a remnant in the days of the Babylonian captivity, he didn't abandon his covenant. He preserves a remnant of his people at the day of the Lord. But it doesn't mean it's going to be easy for the people of God doesn't mean it's going to be easy for the people of God. I want you to listen closely today. Listen quickly. So I want to remind you that we're we're beyond the locusts in chapter two. Now he's talking about the actual coming invasion. Now before we go to Joel chapter two, I want to lay a bit of a foundation from some words that we have referenced before as we've Talked about prophetic literature, especially judgment literature. 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18, Peter's words help us to understand the connection that God is making between the remedial judgment of his people, that is the judgment that brings about a remedy, and the final judgment of all people. So, they're connected in Peter's mind. Peter's motivation for his words carry the real-life weight of dispersion and persecution, if you understand the context of 1 Peter. So he was teaching that we are destined for persecution, for suffering, for affliction before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So I want to remind you that when we as Christians speak about the return of Christ, we ought to remember that also entails God's finishing work that He started in us. As a child, I recall enduring a little bit of pain as I was growing up. Just a little bit of pain. And I would feel that pain in my legs and my joints and things like that. My kids have felt it too, they've talked about it. And my mom always said, It is growing pains. And you see, I understood that and I was like, okay, well, it means I'm growing. Those were pains that were necessary for me to become what I was supposed to be physically. And when you take into account the language of Scripture, how it how it uses uh, language to describe our growing, it's almost entirely associated with discomfort. Think about the process. Like being born again, childbirth, ladies. I'm not, I'm not going to pretend to have any idea. My wife knows I get a cold. I'm down for like two days, and I'm, I'm like wailing in pain. It gets a little longer as I get older. It gets a little longer the more I can milk the situation. But, you know, from being born again, that's the concept. That's a, that's a painful process. How about... How about broken clay pots? How about persecution? How about the fiery trials? How about the refiner's fire? Imprisonment. Uh, there's a various things that we can talk about. All the way to the experience of what the Bible calls the pangs of birth at the second coming of Christ. All of it, where we're headed is descriptive of the discomfort that we feel along the way. So, we're not there yet. Okay, Joel, we're getting there. 1 Peter 4.17 tells us this, and it's going to be on the screen. My screen guy's with me. 1 Peter 4.17 and 18, it tells us, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So, by quoting Proverbs 11.31, word for word, Peter makes the point that believers are scarcely saved. That tells me that the life of a believer is no cakewalk. The sanctification of a believer is no cakewalk. And God will do whatever it takes to make us a holy people, truly set apart for him, purified by him, completely sanctified. So we believers testify, right, don't we? We testify to boldness before the throne. Boldness before the throne, confidence in Christ, assurance of salvation, security in Christ. Yet we can't ever lose our fearful reverence of God. There's a difference between approaching the throne in confidence and boldly and approaching the throne flippantly. And when we lose sight of the holiness that he's called us to, when we slip back into the old ways, when we neglect his instruction, you can guarantee that we are only multiplying the pain of our sanctification. And if you can continue to rebel against God and not see the results or or discipline of God in your life, then that means, folks, that it is likely you are not saved. Peter's words are not done, though. Explains the still future reality of the day of the Lord regarding those who have not surrendered to Christ. If judgment begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel? This ought to terrify us. If the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly? And I can only hope, I can only hope that the words of Joel Indeed, the word of God through Joel come upon the unbeliever with the full realization that your future is indescribably terrible judgment at the hand of God and an eternity of hellfire and separation from everything good about God or this life. Joel makes the connection from God's willingness, all right? So if you're lost, understand this. God is willing to pour out judgment on his own people to make them what they need to be. What what does that mean for you? Terror, terror, terror. He's willing to judge his own people, and he connects that with the fact that there is imminent judgment coming upon everything and everyone all are exposed. Nothing is hidden. Nothing evades God's righteous reign in the end. I'll give you this theme for today. And that was a long introduction, I get it, but I want to set the so, sort of the frame of everything. This is the theme for today. The day of the Lord comes quickly and nothing and no one will be left untouched. The day of the Lord comes quickly and nothing, no one will be left untouched. Let's read from Joel chapter two. Hear the word of the Lord from verses one through 11. He says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near a day of darkness and gloom A day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them. Through the years of all generations, fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots they leap upon the tops of mountains like a crackling of flame of fire, devouring the, st- the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale, like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall, they march each on his way they do not swerve from their paths they do not jostle one another each marches in his path they burst through the weapons and are not halted they leap upon the city they run upon the walls they climb up into the houses they enter through the windows like a thief the earthquakes before them the heavens tremble the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, help us. Send your spirit. Exalt Christ. Be glorified. We pray all this In Jesus' name, amen. The title is the question, who can endure it? Who can endure it? I want to give you three considerations from this text. Three considerations. In regards to the day of the Lord, three considerations. Number one, I want you to note, I want you to consider this frantic urgency. Frantic urgency from verses one and two. Joel is bringing us now to the events of the invasion, which begin with sounding the alarm. It's the alarm of invasion that typically comes from the wall around the city to alert the city. Now, in this case, as you read here, the alarm, the sounding the alarm actually comes from the holy hill. It comes from the holy mountain. Normally, this trumpet would be a call for the people to come worship. Now, the call to worship has been turned into a a warning of judgment. Where I live, we don't uh, have any sirens close enough for tornado warnings. So if the sirens go off, I don't hear it. What happens in my family is uh, my mother or my sisters will text us and make sure we're aware that that there's a tornado warning if and when they come. That's how it happens in my family. We're you know, hunker down and we're getting text updates. Hopefully the TV is still working and we can watch the news from uh, sort of the crack uh, in, the, in, in where we sit. But well, that's how it happens. I don't get to hear the alarm sounding, so somebody lets me know. And you can kind of imagine the, fr- uh, imagine the frantic ac- activity of the people who've ignored God's warnings through the locust plague, Now, now, they're screaming and wailing to neighbors and family and anybody who would hear about what is forthcoming. Unfortunately, there are too many self-identified Christians who can't hear the siren. It's going out right now. It's going out right now. He who has ears to hear. It's going out right now. It's going out every Sunday. It's going out every day in the marketplace, but they can't hear. Even those who profess Christ, they can't hear. They are, chapter one, the drunkards. They're too caught up in their own stupor, drunk on the things of the world, to hear God's call to repentance. They're like the drunkards, but they're also like the falsely assured. Oh, we're in good shape. We do our sacrifices. We do what's required of us. They can't hear But it's also unfortunate that unbelievers cannot hear the message of judgment against them, the the message of the gospel. It continues to be foolish to them. It is foolishness in their hearing, It's, it's just unintelligible religious babble. Stop with that stuff, right? They can't hear. What's interesting in verse two is that we know what's coming we know it's coming. Unlike the tornado, as you're, uh, put yourself there again. A lot of us have like uh, maybe even traumatic memories related to the tornado that came through a few years ago. Put yourself back there. As you're hunkered down in your closet wondering if this will end up being a false alarm or if it will pass us by and hit someone else and whether it will turn to another town or whether it will skip over our house. We know what's coming. We know what's coming, unlike the tornado. We're just guessing. We're hoping. Right here, he says, this is what's coming. There's no question. We know what to expect. And as he describes here, this day of the Lord, it, it settles overhead, overhead. An ominous cloud of darkness, weighty, thick, deepening in its gloom. And then it unleashes its destructive power in an instant. Joel reveals. He reveals what's coming. An army. An army is coming. A powerful people. It's locusts no more. And this is the kind of invasion that alters history. Remember what we talked about from Jeremiah and now Joel It alters history. Once, we used to talk about the exodus, how God was faithful to preserve us from now on. We're going to talk about this day, how God unleashed his fury upon us because of our rebellion. It changes, it alters history. It will be the story that ended life as they knew it. You know, I wonder I'm the kind of person, and some of y'all know this, I'm the kind of person, I'm not real witty, okay? I basically write out everything I'm going to say on a Sunday morning because I, I don't trust my uh, ability to just say words. Some preachers can do that. Don't get it. If we're having a conversation, oftentimes I'm like, man, I need to like take a step back and review these things. Y'all know all those interactions you have from time to time where you walk away from it and you're unsettled and you're like, man, I should have said this. And you replay the conversation over and over and over again. That's me when I'm laying in the bed, I can't go to sleep. I'm replaying that conversation. Oh man, I should have said this. I wish I'd have thought of this. You know, I look into the future state of those who do not follow Christ. I imagine, I imagine what it must be like to replay the opportunities to have repented and believed. That they are replayed and replayed and replayed for the rest of eternity. And the constant regret of not responding, not understanding, not surrendering is always upon them. And increasing upon them. And I will ask, is it upon you? Do you know that that is your future? We know the signs, we see the signs in these verses, darkness, gloom, clouds, thickness. We know the signs, but we also know its reach. We also know its reach. Secondly, endless reach. Consider its endless reach from verses 3 through 9. So Joel gives us a few ways of processing what is coming. I'll be brief with these. Three ways we see judgments, endless Reach. Three ways we see judgments, endless reach. First off in verse 3, observable effects. Observable effects. You notice how he turned to Eden? He says, before they came in, it was like Eden. And I wonder if somehow, like, you know, when you think about the old days, it's always better in your mind than it actually was. And so when they're thinking about, man, before this invasion came, man, it was like utopia. Life was perfect. You you see how he describes it. Before it was like the Garden of Eden. Afterward, it was a desolate wilderness. Do you see what's happening? Do you see what God is doing in his judgment? Jeremiah said the same thing. God is basically taking, as Zephaniah said the same thing, God is taking creation, all the things that he did, and blessed them with, and he is undoing it. The beauty of the Garden of Eden now becomes a desolate wilderness. Comprehensively destructive effects. These are observable effects. Secondly, there is a visible appearance. There is a visible appearance. Verses 4 and 5 say, like horses, they come. They're like war horses. They're like rumbling chariots leaping upon mountains. Like when a flame touches the tinder to become a consuming fire, there is an army drawn up for battle. You remember when the, the spies went into the land, the promised land, to see what was up? Man, there are giants over there. They're giants. We can't go. They're going to overtake us. That's how it is. This is so ominous. This is so bad. This is so bad that all they can compare it to, all Joel can say, man, it's like this rushing army of horses, chariots. It's all coming upon you. It's like a fire. Observable effects, visible appearance. And then verses 6 through 9 crushing impact crushing impact we see judgment's endless reach in its crushing impact hear these words again charge scale not swerve not jostle march burst not halted leap run climb enter this is exacting judgment The battle formation is so precise, so perfect, that there is absolutely no hope of escape. It crushes the soul. It crushes the spirit. It crushes even the flesh. So may the word of the Lord today and every week, may the Lord bring about a paralyzing effect in the life of the unrepentant, whether you're a believer or not, May it bring about a paralyzing effect in that life so that you can't sleep for thoughts about what's to come. And if you manage to sleep, if you manage to get to sleep, then then may the word weigh heavy on you in the morning, may it weigh you down in the day until you make it right with God. This is what God will do. I pray he would send the Spirit to make this your reality if you live in unrepentance. What's the point of these verses exactly? As far as you think you can reach in your own excuses for disobeying God. Hear me. All the excuses you make for disobeying God, Christian, his judgment will reach it. And as far unbeliever as you think you can sidestep the reality of God and the fact that your sins are the most grievous offense to him, as much as you try to deny it and deceive yourself, there is a standard by which all will be judged and you simply fall short of that standard. And that's saying it very, very nicely. You do not have what it takes on your own to stand righteous before God. Unbeliever. Believers, we know this past reality. As far as you think you can run, his judgment reaches you. He has endless reach with his righteous right hand, with the arm of the Lord. And it has most certainly been revealed, as Isaiah says. But the question is, has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Will Will it be a revelation of his grace? Reach out and take his hand. Unbeliever, Jesus, the righteous right hand, stands ready to save you. Will it be a revelation of grace or will it be a revelation of wrath? To the believer, we know, we saw that hand coming at us with wrath and upon repenting and believing, his righteousness became a gift of his grace. His wrath was turned to grace. Which is it? Which is it for you? And ask the question how long can you endure the preaching of God's word, the riches of his grace, the beauty of the gospel, his goodness on display? How long will you attempt to evade him when you know your destiny is to appear before him as judge? Wherein he judges all the deeds you've done. All the deeds you've done. I know his reach is endless because in that 10,000th year in hell, his wrath will still be reaching you. Three considerations. Frantic urgency. Endless reach. But thirdly, I want you to consider that this is divine origin. This has divine origin. Verses 10 and 11 show this to us. For the believers in the refining fire, for the believers in the fiery trials, we call upon the words of Jesus to give us comfort. He said these days would come for us as we encounter trials, afflictions, as we undergo the process, the discomfort of sanctification, but good, the good and uncomfortable process of sanctification. But you know, somehow we still react, and this is a point I've been trying to hammer home in Joel. We still react to those things when they come upon us as though this were not God's perfect will. We've got the testimonies of Joseph and Job, of Jeremiah, of Jesus, and yet we still doubt God and question his work when we find ourselves in the olive press. Divine origin. I want you to see how this this invading army is from a foreign land, a people not in covenant with God, an enemy of him and his people. Imagine what that does to the people of God. They're not your people, but they're they're killing us. They're attacking us. They're taking everything from us. God, this can't be your will. It can't be your will. There's no way. We look at the origins of our afflictions, and we assume that this can't be from God. But it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar who was at the helm. It wasn't any mere men commanding the army against God's people. It was God himself. It brings a, a, a new perspective on James's trials, tests. The tests come upon you. Joel's words have shifted in verses 10 and 11. I want you to notice that the imagery of darkness and quakes, which have been mounting in the text, are now explicitly tied to the Lord. The Lord is doing this. The Lord is doing this on purpose. He's looking past now the Babylonian invasion of Judah to the invading army at the day of the Lord. And you know what happens then? The very same thing. Christ commands his army, legions upon legions, to execute his will without misstep or stumbling, to charge, to scale, to burst, to leap, to run, to climb, to enter the space of of every living thing, every square inch of creation into man's heart, mind, and soul to expose every thought, every intention, every motive, every sin, every error, every millisecond that have been devoted to refusing his grace in Christ. And in one swift action, he will shackle them to the wages of their own rebellious sin. And this is from God. It is from God. We're concluding. And I hope, it, uh, Joe's probably like, man, is this going to be like this every week? This is, I don't know about this. No, there are texts that God gives us to absolutely instill in us the terror of his holiness. And I hope you are terrified today. Next week, he's going to call us to repentance. He's going to say, Return, return. And we're going to get there. And I'm going to hint that right now as we conclude. But go back to the thought this is from God. Hear me. Do you not deserve that, oh man? Oh, wretched man that we are. Wretched sinners that we are. But if you say, but if you, if you say, I, I do deserve this. I do deserve this. I know I deserve this. Then will you also say, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Is there anyone here? Is there anyone here who would finally admit, like, hey, I've been living a lie, I've been lying to myself, I've been, I've been mocking God, and today I'm turning to Jesus once and for all. I mean, is there anybody? Would you stand and say, that's me, I need Jesus, I need salvation right now. We ain't got to close our eyes and bow our heads or anything. It ought to be that Apparent to you and public for you, you need Jesus. Would you turn to Him now, right now? I'll give you time. We don't need to dim lights and pump smoke in the room and Play a soft melody. Like if you need repentance, then do it. If you need Jesus, then come to him. Man, I hope it terrifies you the question, the thought, who can endure it? Who can endure it? conclude here with one verse, Psalm 1, verse 5. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. That is, they can't endure it. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. If you've yet to follow Jesus, then your future is not heaven it's not a new creation. It's not with the people of God. It's not with Jesus himself. Your future is hell. Your future is separation and suffering. Psalm 1 verse 5 says, God knows the way of the righteous. You know how he knows it? Not just because he's prescribed us to walk in it. But he knows the way of the righteous Because the Lord Jesus himself stepped in every way that was righteous. He walked in righteousness. He stood on his own accord, righteous before the Father. And that means that if you're willing to acknowledge you're a total failure before God, and you're willing to call upon Jesus as your Savior... Then God looks down on you and sees the righteousness of Jesus. That he took your place on the cross. He became sin for you while he was sinless. So you might become, as the Bible says explicitly, you might become the righteousness of God in him. Is there anybody? Is there anybody? Let's pray. We'll sing. I'll be available to counsel with you, to pray with you. Let the Spirit have his way.